The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. U.S. stocks rally, yields retreat as investors shrug off recession fears after better-than-expected services sector data. But Federal Reserve officials continue an aggressive push to cool rising inflation, with St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard telling CNBC he favors front-loading and is discounting recessionary fears. With all the job growth in the first half of the year, it's hard to say that there was a recession. With a flat unemployment rate at 3.6%, it's hard to say there's a recession. The Bank of England gets set to raise interest rates for the sixth consecutive time in what could be the largest central bank hike in 27 years out of the Bank of England. OPEC and its allies agreed a hike output by a modest 100,000 barrels per day that is way less than the US administration had been hoping for. So they're at it again. Those uh, Fed speakers are out on the hustings continuing to talk about the need to tackle inflation. The St. Louis Federal Reserve President Jim Bullard says he doesn't see a recession on the horizon, telling CNBC he sees more rate hikes ahead as the Fed looks to tame rising prices. Bullard's comments echoed by Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin, who repeated his commitment to bringing price pressures down to the Fed's 2% target. However, Barkin did warn a downturn could happen, quote, in the process. The Minneapolis Fed President, Neil Kashgari, has rejected suggestions the FOMC could cut rates next year, saying it's extremely unlikely. Kashgari said the more likely option would be for rates to continue rising until inflation is firmly on its way back to 2%. So circling back to Jim Bullard, he outlined his reasons for optimism for the US economy. We're going to get back to 2% uh, over time, and uh, that is the inflation target, and that's the part of the mandate that we're missing on right now because the labor market is, is still very strong. Right. So uh, it's just the inflation side that we're missing. Well, Bullard also told our U.S. colleagues to expect strong economic activity for the rest of the year. The second quarter, I think, was uh, more concerning. And so I'll watch that carefully. But now what I think is going to happen in the second half of the year is that uh, uh, we'll get positive GDP growth in the second half. I think uh, we'll have a, a reasonably good third quarter here. Well, speaking to CNBC, Carlyle Group co-founder and co-chairman David Rubenstein downplayed concerns of a slump in economic activity. I don't think uh, there is likely to be a recession in the immediate future. I think the Fed has done a reasonably good job of catching up to the problem they had of not anticipating inflation being as high as, as it turned out to be. And I think the markets are now anticipating that, that the Fed has got it under control as much as you reasonably can. So I think the markets today reflect the fact that the economy is not heading into a recession anytime soon. 
Well, let's take a look at how the markets digested all of that. And actually, the net-net was really not, uh, not terribly much movement for the Dow. It actually finished to the downside ever so slightly there with the most negative mover being Chevron. But that was, of course, uh, also part, partly due to the fact that we saw a big drop in oil prices overnight. And we'll bring you more on that in just a second. In the meantime, the S&P 500 managed to finish up by six-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq here, the clear outperformer with a 2.5% gain, the biggest mover for the Nasdaq to the upside was Apple putting on 67 points. Uh, let's take a look at uh, the Treasury market here where we did see yields move to the downside uh, in US trade and also spreads narrowing. The two-year is still uh, holding above the five and the ten-year though, uh, currently yielding around the 3.08 mark. Uh, and we've got the, uh, the five-year 2.8 and 2.7 there for the ten-year and the market is currently pricing at approximately a 58% chance of a 50 basis point hike in September. So uh, 75 clearly not necessarily the new normal 50 also possibly on the table despite all of this inflation fighting talk. Let's take a look at the dollar crosses here where the US dollar has been recouping this week uh, some of the ground that it lost over the course of last week. Remember last week's narrative out in the market was oh you know the economic problems are greater than inflation we could see a pivot by the Fed. This week's narrative as we just heard from a number of Fed speakers is that inflation is still enemy number one of the people and we have to keep keep on hiking. So the pushback on that has pushed the US dollar to the upside and it's up about half a percent week to date. Sterling dollar is uh, holding at 121.52. Mark it down on your piece of paper in front of you. That is what we're sitting at going into the BOE decision today. A lot more on that in a second. Euro dollar 101.61. Not able to hold on to the 102 handle in the face of a strong dollar. Uh, dollar yen 133 and uh, dollar yen sitting at uh, 6 0.75 there. A Reuters poll recently, just throwing a little factoid for you, found that 70% of analysts still think that the US dollar is yet to peak in this cycle. Let's take a look at the Asian markets and uh, show you the picture here with the Nikkei 225 moving up by six tenths of a percent. Hang Seng 1.2% pop there, Shanghai Composite sitting flat and Australia is uh, in the flat territory as well. Uh, we uh, also have seen that the Hong Kong market, despite its, uh, its gains that it's really trying to recoup from recent losses, it is still in bear market territory and the Shanghai market is still there in Correction territory. We've got a barrage of PMIs out of um, Asia as well yesterday. Uh, Singapore's PMI actually was pretty good. It's been one of the more resilient of the stock markets so far this year. Uh, Hong Kong's PMI was also holding steady. Okay, let's take a look at some uh, opening calls and uh, show you that the picture here in Europe looks like it could be mildly positive at the start of trade. Jeff. Yeah, what a confusing cocktail we've got here. C come on back. We'll have a look at the, the US futures because I think that indicates that we may see some taking back of some of those positive games we saw in the session yesterday. But frankly, it was very confusing. I mean, we, we saw all of these Fed speakers come out on CNBC and elsewhere. Yes. And they're all basically desperately trying to convince the market that yields should be going up, yes. not down. And yet yields went down. So it the market is, so is insisting that it will fight the Fed at this stage. It, you know, it feels to me like, um, it, what, what's the old quote, he doth protesteth too much? Yes. 
Uh, it's a credibility or a issue. Very or Shakespearean. Nice. <laughs> it sounds like it, doesn't it? It does it sound say. very Shakespearean. Yeah. If there's a doff, there's definitely Shakespeare in there somewhere. Yeah. It's a credibility issue because the, the Fed lost so much credibility. Remember that, you know, back in the day, they were like saying we need to get inflation to the 2% mark. That was the magical number. And yeah. then, of course, they said, oh, inflation's just transitory. Well, that turned out not to be true. And then they arguably started hiking way too late. So now it's like they've got to put it out. Did you notice how many of the speakers overnight mm. said we've got to get inflation down to the 2% target? Because they, they had that to begin with and then they've lost it clearly. And now they're so desperate to put it out there that, no, we're sticking to what we originally said. So they don't want to have egg on their face. They don't want to you know, show that they got it so wrong and that it was a big, a big mistake to try and get to the 2% in the first place. Um, but, you know, I would say a lot of the issues with inflation are supply side so you can hike as much as you like and, and, and you're not going to clear the ports by hiking rates you know you're not going to put food on the table or solve the war in Ukraine by hiking rates you can only do it uh, on the demand side and it looks like because the economic growth is slowing down and prices have gone up that that's sort of self-correcting anyway yeah I mean that's a terrific point it's the same dilemma uh, for the Bank of England today isn't it the bank is set to apparently raise rates for the sixth time in a row Money markets have priced in a more than 90% chance of a 50 basis point hike this afternoon, which would be the bank's largest rate increase for more than a quarter of a century. Inflation in the UK currently stands at 9.4%. That is a 40-year high, with soaring fuel costs expected to push that figure to 11% in October when the cap on annual domestic energy bills is due to increase once again. Um, Sterling has lost something like 10%, I think, against the US dollar over the course of the year so far. So Sterling, uh, obviously, um, likely to be impacted by any sizable 50 basis point move at this stage. But let's get out to Germana, who joins us from outside the Bank of England. Uh, and Jamana, Andrew Bailey and the team at the Bank of England have been heavily criticised over recent months for apparently muddled messages. And I do wonder this time how they finesse a 50 basis point move, having spent most of the year dismissing the likelihood of such a big step. I think the question is very spot on, Jeff, and it was actually yourself, you asked the Bank of England back in May whether or not they had considered going for a larger interest rate hike, and the answer they gave you was quite non-committal at the time. They said they're always looking at their forecasts and how things evolve, but at that time, back in May, they thought a 25 basis points was justified, but obviously over the next couple of months, things changed. Back in June, we had a 6-3 split with three hawkish dissenters three members on the committee actually wanted to go for a 50 basis point hike and here we are today with a 50 basis point hike pretty much fully priced in at this point and I just want to draw viewers attention to a line that a lot of market participants have been calling on in expectation of today's meeting and that is out of the June MPC minutes the Bank of England inserted a line saying that they would look to act quote forcefully if there were signs of persistent inflationary pressures and so that act forcefully has been taken to uh, to be understood as a means of uh, going for a higher interest rate hike and possibly 50 basis points a day. There's also about another 40 basis points priced in for the September meeting, 150 basis points priced in by the end of the year. So that tells you that the short-term interest rate market is really expecting a steep hiking curve out of the Bank of England. And then, so the question is, how did we get to this point in the first place? Well, back in May, they had their forecast for inflation of 
10 and a quarter percentage points for this year. They're likely going to upgrade that even more this time on back of that energy price cap increase as we talked about uh, in October. So they're likely to revise that upwards to 12 percentage points. And you and Mandy were just talking now about how some of these inflationary pressures are external driven. That is true. But at the same time, if you look at core inflation measures, there are signs that things are beginning to become a lot more broad based. You look at wage growth, for example, and on any different metric you look at it, it is way above the long term average of around 3%. We're running closer to 5% than 3% from a wage growth standpoint. And so putting all of those things together, there certainly is a lot of pressure on the Bank of England to do something about the inflation environment. And at the same time, the dilemma that many of these central banks are grappling with is how they can raise interest rates but not do it in such a fashion that they could tip the economy to a recession. Perhaps one good thing that's working on the Bank of England's part in a positive way is that the recent activity indicators have actually been better than expected. We had those PMI numbers recently still above the 50 line. So many people are saying that this is the Bank of England's window. Just get it done. Go for the aggressive hikes before things start to turn south for the economy. It's always a bit difficult to try and preempt what the politicians may decide here, Jamana. But just sort of rounding out this story, um, we know that the two competing candidates to become prime minister and leader of the Conservative Party have been talking about different fiscal plans. But if we are to see further stimulus uh, for the economy at a fiscal level, to what extent does the Bank of England committee need to bear that in mind? as they contemplate the decision today. Yes, so what's interesting about the Bank of England is they will never formally include the uh, fiscal plans until they've actually been written down, so and actually written into law. So uh, at this point, we're just going on speculation. And what uh, many different notes out there have suggested that the plans put forward by the front runner Liz Truss at this point are akin to about one to two percentage points worth of additional fiscal easing. In that case, the expectation is that the Bank of England would have to hike an additional 50 basis points on top of whatever is priced in already. A similar situation for Rishi Sunak, not as much fiscal loosening, but in recent days he's been promising a little bit more uh, goodies and handouts. So uh, in a sense, that will also provide some fiscal loosening. So they'll have to uh, definitely pay attention to what those two front runners end up actually bringing to the table. But I thought one thing that was interesting in looking at interest rate expectations and all of that, very similar to the US, the interest rate curve is pricing in a lot of hikes this year. As of next year, May 2023, they're starting to price in cuts again, which I think is a very telling point as well, because equally, you don't want to be in a situation where you've hiked so much that you have to start cutting very aggressively uh, to combat spiraling uh, unemployment, etc., etc. For the time being, we're not in that situation. But remember, these rate hikes do tend to work with the lag, sometimes as as much as six months. Challenging, as always, uh, for the central bank. Thank you so much for that, uh, Jamana. And just to point out, Jamana and Juliana will bring you that decision from 12.55 Central European time. Jamana will sit down with the Bank of England governor later after the decision. That interview will come to you at about 1700 Central European time. Remember earlier on this week, we were discussing how UK housing prices had held up really well in the face of the hikes that we've seen from the BOE so far. 
And, um, you know, I've been thinking even more about this and, and again, sort of looking myself just in various real estate agents windows out of just purely out of curiosity. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering whether they would like be unlikely to have a 90s style wipeout for the UK housing market, even if the BOE keeps on hiking here, because there's just so demand, there's so much demand, isn't there, for mm. London property. Um, and with the sterling so weak at the moment, I mean, whether it's, you know, UK uh, residents or whether it's international residents, London property is one of those sort of must-have in your mm. diversified international portfolio of property kind of places, isn't it? Mm. Um, but, but, you know, it's hard for the locals, really hard for the locals and the over two million mortgage holders here in London and the southeast. Well, what's interesting is, is the reports that you're getting from the international property mm. companies who are obviously dealing with a lot of overseas buyers yes. and they report very high levels of interest in the London market at the moment and that probably is shouldn't be a great surprise given where we are on sterling. The pound has not had a, a, a great 18 months but depending on which perspective you have here mm. but as, uh, as um, someone who earns in pounds it's obviously been a little more expensive to travel mm. and to buy uh, products that are manufactured overseas here. But I think for, for people that are shopping for a relatively secure uh, London uh, property, but secure in the sense that mm. generally contract is honoured here, you don't have too many legal problems, and the property market historically has generally only gone in one direction. So there is perceived to be a lot of security here, mm. but it's interesting that a lot of the uh, US buyers are also looking at Paris and France. There's been a significant uptick as well, I think, in American interest in buying in Europe, just because the euro, the euro. is down so much against the dollar at this mm. stage. But just coming, circling back to, to the UK, I think affordability is a problem mm. here. Um, the foreign buyer perhaps doesn't have to consider some of those issues, but for the domestic buyer, I do think there is an affordability issue. The bank has scrapped its affordability test, mm. so it's making a little, it, it a little bit easier, I think, for people to get on the ladder. The problem is the banks themselves are actually being fairly rigid mm -hmm. on the kind of uh, mortgage lines that they're prepared to offer mm. at the moment. And I think that's, you know, obviously they were burnt from the financial crisis and they've become a lot more rigorous. And that's certainly showing up. In, to lend to. You're absolutely yeah. right, Jeff, and that's already showing up in mortgage approvals slowing down, even though the house prices themselves seem to be holding up at least so far pretty well. But um, mm. you look, it's going to be really rough of those, um, you know, one stat I had was of those over two million uh, mortgages. That's like about one in four people. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, around one quarter, I think, around um, 20. Sorry, let me let me circle back. Of those over two million mortgage holders in London and South East, around 27%, so one in four people, have a fixed rate mortgage that is going to roll off, is going yeah. to expire in 24 months or less, and they are going to be hit the massively is, by those I mean, higher rates. Look, look at the mortgage rate. It is historically incredibly low. And you have to pinch yourself for a moment and say, if somebody cannot afford a mortgage at two to three percent what are they doing in the property market at this point anyway because if we get to four or five or six percent in terms of the kind of mortgage deals that are being offered that's a lot of pain that's going to double a yes. lot of people's payments they should be building that into their crisis scenario 
when they go into the housing market in the first place. And I know that sounds terribly harsh and people are going to be out there going, well, what does he know? It's probably okay for him and all the rest. But, you know, take some personal responsibility over your personal finances. And, and that's a point that's well made, but also I would say when we always say, um, oh, you know, but rates are historically low, um, we have been so conditioned by having incredibly low interest rates. Um, it's been like being and a, was that being the a first kid in the candy bank store. Policy mistake, perhaps. Well, yeah, it's Let's it's, have it's a moral hazard. Cycle, it's know? moral hazard. Central banks have completely created this monster all by themselves. But um, you know, look, and now now the Fed is like a like a, a parent standing over and saying, "Sorry, no more candy for you." But I but I love candy. I've had candy for so long. I'm addicted to sugar. Sorry, it's gone. You know. Deal with the consequences. France's parliament has approved a new 20 billion euro inflation relief package. The stimulus bill will lift pensions and boost household purchasing power. The legislation, which was a major promise in President Macron's re-election campaign, this all comes as inflation in France hit 6.1% in July, the highest since 1985. We've got to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi touches down in South Korea after her brief trip to Taiwan. We'll have the latest on that story when we come back. And for more on the Bank of England and what is expected to do later on today, you can check out the Squawk podcast. Make sure. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. We just want to dip back into the Asian session as it's trading at the moment. Um, in anticipation of uh, Alibaba numbers, Hong Kong has had a rip-roaring session, up uh, 1.5% at the moment. The Shanghai Composite has just slipped into negative territory. We still have this whole story playing out about the rage in Beijing to Nancy Pelosi's visit. Uh, we continue to monitor the geopolitical fallout from that story. But this morning, it doesn't seem to be holding back the broader Asian complex with the Nikkei 225 up six-tenths of one percent. We also had some uh, Toyota numbers out a little earlier on. But as I say, we are waiting on Alibaba figures, and we will uh, tell you more about that story uh, as those figures are announced. So back to Nancy Pelosi then. The U.S. House Speaker is in South Korea now, fresh from her whistle-stop trip to Taiwan. She met with political leaders, but not President Yoon, who is on holiday and is also reported uh, to be visiting the DMZ, the demilitarized zone on the border with North Korea later today. As Pelosi left Taiwan, she reiterated Washington's, quote, ironclad commitment to defending the island's democracy, but Beijing described it differently. It is an outright farce. Under the guise of democracy, the U.S. is infringing on China's sovereignty. Taiwan's Tsai Ing-wen and those of her ilk try to rely on the power of the U.S. to seek Taiwanese independence, which betrays the overall national interest of China. 
Such retrogressive moves won't change the international consensus that there is only one China in the world, nor can they reverse the historical trend of reunification of the mainland and Taiwan. Those who play with fire will come to no good end, and those who offend China must be penalized. Well, familiar strong words from the uh, Chinese representative there, but let's get to Shari Kang, who uh, joins us now uh, with more on this story. And also, Sherry, perhaps a line on what we can expect from Nancy Pelosi's visit to Korea. Right. And of course, the South Korea's office is a uh, top office is probably hoping that it would be less explosive or less controversial than her trip to Taiwan that happened just before she moved on to South Korea last night. And of course, not a lot of surprises so far. Uh, we did see a lot of promises about uh, really working together for a better, stronger alliance between the U.S. and South Korea. She did sit down with her South Korean counterpart, who is the National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo today. And also she talked about how the joint statement talked about how the U.S. is really committed to this idea of a strong U.S. extended deterrence against North Korea, so which is really the idea of Washington deploying all military strategic assets, including nuclear ones, to protect its allies, including uh, South Korea. Take a listen to a part of Nancy Pelosi, U.S. House Speaker's uh, announcement of that joint statement in Seoul this morning. The U.S. Republic of Korea relationship is special to us. And we want, over time, I've been here before, met with members of parliament uh, in the past, and uh, we want to strengthen that interparliamentary role as we work together as countries. And she also mentioned a lot of uh, South Korean companies and recent decisions to uh, allocate a lot of uh, capex in the United States, saying that she welcomes it, saying it helps job creation and local economies uh, vitalization in the United States. And of course, uh, you mentioned, Jeff, earlier on how she's not expected to meet with a South Korean president, Yoon Sang-yeol. Perhaps it's really uh, the result of the top office in South Korea trying to uh, carry out this uh, delicate balancing act between the U.S. and China, although President Yoon is expected to have a phone call uh, with Nancy Pelosi later on this afternoon. And wrapping up her trip in South Korea before moving on to Japan, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is expected to pay a visit to the joint security area along the uh, demilitarized zone in the uh, the border area between the two Koreas. And of course, this is really one spot along the DMZ that uh, where the two Koreas and militaries forces are facing each other. And the last time a high profile U.S. official paid a visit to that particular spot was back in June of 2019 with former a president of the United States, Donald Trump, meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.